Okay. So, uh, yeah, welcome to Labrie. Um, if you haven't ever been to a Labrie meeting before, uh, we are an organization that often welcomes people into our home. Uh, they stay for a short period of time asking questions uh, about life, uh, the deeper questions about meaning and trust and love and uh, often coming out of a crisis. And we are someone who's committed to saying that Christianity is true, but we welcome people who don't believe that. And we welcome people to come with their various convictions uh, and various ideas and questions. And we try to work them out in the context of, of eating meals together and of, um, of study and work. So it's, it's quite good. We really wish that we were doing that right now, but you know what? On Zoom, it's okay. We're happy to be able to, to do it in this context. It's better than nothing. Um, okay, so tonight is a, it's an interesting topic. Uh, I think what I called it is, does the Christian faith fail? Uh, I believe in some ways this will be a bit of a workshop. I will be talking and I can always talk at length and hopefully I don't jump too fast. Uh, I'm going to try to explain things as I go in case, but what I'm going to do is uh, deal with a book called The Christian Delusion. But before I get to that, you know, as I was reading this, it reminded me of this student that sat at one of our meals and he was an agnostic. He was raised in the Christian church, but had come to no longer believe in Christianity, but he still struggled in knowing what he believed. And he was asking questions about, could Christianity still be tenable? Uh, after it seemed to him that it was not possible. And he had one of these sharp minds that would have a claim and then a defeater and then a, a reason to that defeater, you know, a very philosophical approach toward the veracity or the truthfulness of Christianity and the belief in God. Well, he asked the question at our meal and said, do we ever believe what we don't want to believe? Don't we always believe what we want to believe? I thought that was a very good question and very challenging one. Uh, it made us think very deeply about what would we believe that we don't want to believe? And ultimately, don't you end up believing, even if you don't want to believe, but then at some point you want to believe it and that's why you believe it. Of course, that still begs the question on, is it wrong? Uh, just because you want to believe something true doesn't mean that it's false. Uh, of course, wanting to believe something doesn't make it true either, but it's just, it's just part and parcel of what or how we come to believe something. But <clears throat> I really felt that this question really reflected the editor of this book. Uh, the editor of this book called The Christian Delusion which came out in 2010, John Luftus. He's a pastor or was a pastor and ended up rejecting his faith 
And now uh, due to criticisms that he was facing from fellow Christians, he became antagonistic and decided that he wanted to be a form of an anti-apologist. An apologist is someone who defends why Christianity is true against certain claims. Well, he wanted to help Christians move toward atheism. And so he's been writing books about that. One was called Why I Became an Atheist. And then also Why Faith Fails, The Christian Delusion, where he has a series of people that all of them but one had a Christian faith at some point and gave it up and now are presenting articles on why they don't believe anymore. Uh, it's broken up into five parts, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to have five-part series on this book, so we're going to be able to get into it quite deeply. Uh, the first one is Why Faith Fails, and that's what I'm going to be dealing with tonight, is Why Faith Fails. The second one, let me read these, <clears throat> Why the Bible is Not God's Word, that's part two. Part three, why the Christian God is not perfectly good. Part four, why Jesus is not the risen son of God. And part five, why society does not depend on Christian faith, which is talking about uh, the need for morality um, or tragedies like the Holocaust. Um, the Holocaust was not a result of atheism. Christianity does not provide the basis for morality and Christianity is not responsible for modern science. So those are the types of articles that are being written. Well, in the first part, he wants to set up the basis of his argument and to set up something called the outsider test for faith, the OTF. So please let me just say OTF. Um, it's better than WTF, I guess, but it's <laughs> OTF is the outsider test for faith. And I'll get to what he means by that in a minute. But the first, um, <clears throat> so I'm going to deal with this first part and I'm going to deal with the first three chapters quite quickly because it moves us to the fourth chapter, which is John Luftus's article on why faith fails, uh, revisiting his OTF, his outsider test for faith. So, but the first three really set up the editor. The editor was smart enough to put these three before his because he wanted to prove a point. And so the first one is, an, is called, <clears throat> uh, I'll, I'll say them exactly what they were. Um, Dr. Eller spoke on the cultures of Christianities where he's saying that we are not indoctrinated into truth or indoctrinated into Christianity. We're not taught Christianity and come to a reasonable conclusion that we want to become a Christian. Rather, it's the culture in which we are raised. That most, uh, and so he says that 95% of people who become Christians are because they're raised in Christian countries, not because they have come to see it as deductively true or have some kind of confidence through reason or through skepticism. That's not how they come to faith, but because they were raised upon their mama's knees. And so you would say, if you turn to India, you're gonna find 95% Hindu, 
you turn to uh, Iran, you're probably going to find a high percent of Muslim. So wherever you're raised is the likelihood of why you believe what you believe. So it's not about some reason proof, but just you're more enculturated than taught. The second, um, and so that's really an argument from anthropology, that the reason people are Christians is because of the study of culture. And they show that the reason that they're Christian is not because of something special about Christianity, something miraculous, but because it's just cultural. Well, the second two are looking through the lens of psychology. Uh, and so Christian belief through the lens of cognitive science, basically Dr. Tirico says that, um, that we realize that conversion experience is actually something not unique to the Christian. It's something that can be found among many religions and many experiences that are a-religious that express the same kind of psychological change or shift in them. And then the third one is called the, malle the malleability of the human mind by Dr. Long, Dr. Jason Long. And, and this one is saying that often belief comes in the weakest moment, our vulnerabilities. When we're most vulnerable is when we're most likely to make a life choice like Christianity, for example. This book is, is, uh, rejects all religion as true, that all religion is false but his particular aim is that Christianity, the Christian delusion. Now, you may have noticed that the title, The Christian Delusion, sounds very familiar. <laughs> uh, it's echoing Richard Dawkins' book called The God Delusion. God Delusion came out in 2006, I believe. Uh, this came out in 2010 on the heels of that. And so the, the context... <clears throat> Of, the, of this book and of Dawkins' book, Dawkins kind of created a spate of movies and comedies and articles really based around the idea of coming into a new atheism to reject religion. And the idea to reject religion was very strong because of 9-11. So this is really post 9-11, trying to find a way where we're not going to be divided by war um, and the, the scandals that were happening at the Catholic Church at that moment, but of course, throughout the world in the Christian church. And so you have the movies like Religulous, Bill Mars, Religulous, and his kind of propensity to make fun of Christianity. You had Ricky Gervais doing stand-up, um, an anti-Christian stand-up. He's very funny uh, and very reverent. Uh, and you also had, <clears throat> uh, there was, in BC, there was a license that this guy wanted to get, and he wanted to be able to put a pasta strainer on his hat. And they said that he couldn't, but he said it was a part of his religious beliefs because he was a pastafarian. I don't know if you remember, but people were suggesting that uh, their new religion was pastafarian because they believed in the flying spaghetti monster up in space. And this was all to make fun of religion. This was coming out of Dawkins but a guy actually got a pasta strainer on his head because you can wear religious articles on your BC license, like a hijab or a, a cross or something like that. And so this guy wanted to put a pasta strainer on his head and got that passed. Um, 
but it became <laughs> provincial news. I don't know how much further, but uh, I don't know if they allow that anymore. But it was all to make fun of Christianity. And so this book is out of that milieu, out of that atmosphere, cultural atmosphere. I mean, what's happened since is that new, new atheism hadn't, did not really give much meaning systems. It, it was really good at deconstructing, deconstructing systems of why we shouldn't be religious, but they weren't really offering much of why we should be something alternative to that. Uh, and so you had someone like Thomas Nagel uh, wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, which said that materialism flew in the face of daily experience, that we daily experience love, trust, romance, even religion. And so while Nagel himself was not a Christian, he's an atheist, but he's felt that the materialism, this belief that all matter is just all the world ever is, is what it is now. And that religious belief is something that is just psychologically or anthropologically derived. And that, <clears throat> uh, that he said that what materialists need is a new explanation. And then also Charles Taylor wrote uh, a very significant book called A Secular Age on that people are not becoming less spiritual. They're becoming more spiritual, even though uh, belief in institutions is declining. So in spite of new atheism, religion and spirituality is still on the rise. It just has various forms. Uh, but I still believe that this book is worth dealing with um, because Loftus, I don't know him, uh, but I've met hundreds Loftuses that have come through Labrie. People who feel like, okay, this is the last, last ditch effort to hold on to Christianity. Some people have come here to say, this is the end of my Christianity and I just wanted to bring it to closure, something significant. Um, and then also we have lots of people who are skeptical, people who have suffered um, various things in their churches, in their families, or even burnout pastors and missionaries who feel like it's time to give up. So this, this is a person that I feel that I have met many times, but he's writing it down and trying to use a method in which to discern the validity of Christianity and he finds it failing. So why faith fails, or he, he feels that this outsider test for faith, which I'll get to in a minute, basically shows that Christianity fails. And it is not up to snuff on something that we should believe like gravity. Gravity is testable, it's provable, Christianity is not. It's like trying to prove that Santa Claus exists or the flying spaghetti monster, even though he never says that. And he's not as derisive as Dawkins, uh, and he also comes from the insider point of view. Uh, Dawkins doesn't, I don't know, um, but Dawkins doesn't seem to have that insider point of view as Loftus, as a pastor, a former pastor, does. Um, even though he says even during that time of inside Christianity, he doubted it. So um, it never seemed like he had a lot of certainty, but enough for him to become a pastor, I, see, um, I suppose. <clears throat> so chapter one through chapter three, the about how there's anthropological explanations or cultural explanations and psychological explanations of why we become Christians, that Christianity is not really that Superior is just like all other belief systems. It's just like Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism. 
it's they're all the same and they all fail the test of empirical data or provable data. So John Leftis is now introduced in his own book, um, in his essay. Um, my notes are flying everywhere <laughs> as I'm talking. And I'm just being laughed at, that's all there is. But you know what, I'm okay with ridicule. So chapter four, the outsider test for faith revisited. Uh, let me pick up my notes. You know, Kurt Vonnegut uh, is a very famous, this has nothing to do with my lecture. Uh, it's just broad cultural education. Kurt Vonnegut is a very famous writer and he wrote all of his books, all 30, 40, however many they are, um, on napkins, envelopes, and everything else. He never just wrote them on a computer. Uh, and so that's kind of what I have. I just have scrap paper. <laughs> and so yes. I don't know if this will be on the level of Vonnegut. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, okay, so let me get into John Leftis, uh, his OTF, Outsider Test for Faith. And he says that this is akin to the golden rule. Now, you may be familiar, everyone's familiar with the golden rule. It's coming from Jesus's words, to love others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, that kind of mantra. And what Loftus saw was that when Christians looked at other religious faiths, they were often skeptical. That when they looked at the Book of Mormon, they assumed human authorship, not divine authorship. When they heard the extraordinary claims of, of what happened, um, uh, miraculous activities, or seeing visions that Mormons claim to have, they would, they would try to find a naturalistic explanation. Um, and they would quickly find contradictions. And the burning of the bosom would be also seen. Uh, the burning of the bosom is when um, a Mormon has been um, converted. And that's how they would often express it. And they would say that uh, this is very similar. Uh, but they would say, well, there's no proof, there's no fruit or whatever the Christian might say. And he says that the Christian would have all this skepticism toward Mormonism. He doesn't say this particularly, but he just says all religions. You could say this with Islam. But when it comes to their own faith, they end up not having that skepticism. They just believe. They just trust that miracles did happen. They just trust that the Bible is God's word. They just trust that Jesus rose again from the dead, but they never apply the same type of skepticism that they would toward another religion. So what John Loftus is saying is, look, let's apply the OTF, the golden rule of skepticism. Let's apply that same kind of skepticism towards your own belief. Because, um, and this is his, <clears throat> his four points, of the justification for the OTF. He said that um, rational people all around the world um, often adopt a wide diversity of religions. And he says, so there's religion diversity throughout the world. And it says it's very likely that most adopted their religion based on the culture in which they were born. And so he's saying it's uh, a religious dependency thesis that they became Muslim because they grew up in a Muslim country. They became Christian because they grew up in a Christian country, not for rational reasons, but more likely uh, for cultural dependent ones. Uh, number three, let me quote since it's short. Hence the odds are highly likely 
that any given adopted religious faith is false. And so he says that the best way is to, um, to test one's own adopted religious faith from the perspective of an outsider, just as you would adopt skepticism toward another religion, adopt that skepticism toward your own so that you can transcend your own cultural, anthropological, and psychological conditions on your belief. And he says that if you end up applying the same type of naturalistic skepticism toward Christianity, you will find that Christianity in your faith fails. It will not stand up to the test. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so here are the three, uh, three forms of uh, three examples of how to use the OTF toward Christianity. He said, so when you're trying to talk about why you believe or why something is true, like Jesus rising again from the dead or God exists, don't quote the Bible. Don't quote the Bible because that's already suspect. You have to not quote the Bible. You just have to use rationality and skepticism. He also says that you need to read criticisms of Christianity. He says that usually when people are evangelizing, they are not handing out the Christian delusion <laughs> alongside it so that people can make a fair choice. Uh, so he says, read criticisms of Christianity. And in light of that, also be critical of the apologists like William Lane Craig, Tim Keller, um, William James, Pascal. Oh, I should cite a, a little personal note. This guy studied under William Lane Craig, who is a internationally known Christian apologist. Um, but he, so he re references Bill, quote unquote, um, throughout the essay about how he wishes Bill would apply the same skepticism to his own faith as he does to others. So the first is don't quote the Bible, read criticisms of Christianity or read skeptically of Christian books. And then lastly, examine your own social conditions of religious belief. Why did you come to believe in the first place? He says, William Lane Craig often gives all these reasons of why Christianity is reasonable or truthful, but William Lane Craig himself came at a point of vulnerability, at a point of crisis, and he met a loving community with uh, books that he read, and they made sense to him at the time, and so he took on Christian faith and now has used, according to Loftus and others, that he has used his intellect in his rationality in service of that emotion rather than in question of that emotion. Uh, you know, Loftus in, in the first, uh, in one of the essays, I can't remember the psychological one, but he was saying that there's a confirmation bias. And I believe that Liz and I both talked about Jonathan Haidt in The Righteous Mind, where he says we're like riders on top of elephants. And uh, the rider is reason, the elephant is our emotions, or our feelings, or our intuitions, uh, and that we end up believing something because it moves us, and then we use reason to qualify why we believe what we believe, even if it's not necessarily rational. So we come to believe perhaps for reasons irrationally, but then we use reason to service why we believe. It's not that we reason into belief and then have an emotional attachment. 
the emotional attachment happens first and then reason serves it. Well, Loftus would say William Lane Craig had emotional attachment. He's a bright man uh, and has become very educated, has defended Christianity before Dawkins and Dennett and others. And yet uh, he says that if William Lane Craig went back to his used what he knows now in his critical stance toward things and went back to his pre-conversion time that he would likely not become a Christian. That's what Loftus says. Um, and so we need to become aware of our psychological and cultural conditions of why we believe we need to transcend them is what Loftus is saying. So don't quote the Bible, be critical of Christian, read book critical of Christianity and examine your own social conditions. And if you do so, then you're likely to come to the conclusion as he did to becoming an agnostic. He said, it's, it's, it's hard to believe you to do otherwise. Of course, I have to ask about the question of C.S. Lewis, but we'll get to that later. <clears throat> now, what I'm going to do is look at a few objections that he offers, that there were objections to his OTF, and then respond to his OTF or to Loftus and how Christians might think of an outsider perspective in relation to their own faith and to ask the question, will their faith fail? So that's where I'm going. Is that clear? <laughs> I'm getting a nod from one person. So, okay. I'm glad you're with me. Uh, <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to deal with seven objections or, or maybe not all of them. Because to be honest, not all objections are of equal <laughs> value. But one, he's asked, well, aren't you lucky to have been born in a time of modern science? Because had you been born a thousand years ago, maybe you wouldn't have the um, ability to come up with the OTF. Now, would you? And he said, yes, I'm actually very thankful to have grown up during a time of modern science. And he says this, and, uh, and some of these objections I'm quoting um, or looking at because he actually says some very important things within these objections um, or response to these objections. He says, the only thing we can and should trust is the sciences. It produces excellent results and it's repeatable. Uh, that is what religion cannot do. It cannot be studied in the same way. And therefore he trusts sciences, not religious belief. And so, yes, he's thankful to have been born in modern science. Otherwise, he would have believed the same myths. He could have believed in Zeus had he been born in Greece in 1000 BC. So people are like, well, um, what about Asians becoming Christians in a non-Christian culture? He says, well, I don't think that they believe for objective reasons, that their culture is very much uh, superstitious like Christianity, and therefore it's not surprising and evangelists, like I said earlier, don't offer counter arguments when they're presenting Christianity. Therefore, they are more likely to believe for emotional reasons, not for objective ones. People said, what about uh, Christians giving up their faith? Now, this was an interesting one because he never dealt with people who actually gave up their faith. Uh, what he dealt with were Christians, young Christians who or no, young people who do not adopt their parents' faith. And what he said is that um, they often 
adjust to a different denomination or become liberal as composed to a conservative, but he doesn't deal necessarily with Christians who truly abandon faith. Uh, and, and so I'm a little surprised with that, but he, he does say at best that, well, pluralism is our culture, our cultural um, atmosphere. And so it's not surprising that children are adopting plural attitudes toward religion. And then he says, <clears throat> uh, isn't the skeptic just as culturally trapped as the religious? You know, if, if a Christian has become a Christian because they're culturally conditioned, isn't the skeptic culturally conditioned to become a skeptic? Which is actually the question I was asking him in my mind. But he said the skeptic is self-aware in a way that the Christian or the religious person is not. The skeptic is self-aware that they are culturally and psychologically conditioned, and therefore they're able to transcend their culture and their psychology because of that self-awareness. Their skepticism allows them to basically get above that. Yes. And so he says, um, quoting, skepticism is not a belief system. And it's an, it's an approach to truth claims and a reasonable one at that. Skepticism is the hallmark of an adult who thinks for herself. And so he says skepticism should be light toward something like the theory of gravity, since it's so obvious, and should be heavy toward extraordinary claims like a God exists. As he often says, Extraordinary claims should have extraordinary evidence. And he says that skepticism is like smelling for rotten eggs. It's really good at smelling out rotten eggs, but it's really hard to tell you which one's the good one. So he says skepticism can't offer you that true religion or that true belief, but it can tell you what's not, which is an interesting posture. But he does say skepticism is the best we have at trying to address what is true, or at least trying to qualify what is false. Um, and so actually he has a great quote here. Applying, someone asked him, what about applying his OTF, his skepticism toward his skepticism? He says, when it comes to the OTF, someone cannot say I ought to be just as skeptical of it as I am about the conclusions I arrive at when I apply the test, since I have justified this test independently of my conclusions. From what we know of the case, um, anyway, um, that second sentence did not matter. <laughs> but he's basically saying his skepticism has enabled him to be removed from that skepticism. It keeps him guarded from it. Bear with, bear with. If you've seen Miranda, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, <clears throat> then there's uh, the objection, which is similar. And you'll see a lot of these are very similar objections that he's trying to respond to. And this is the one that he responds to most at length. Isn't atheism simply a faith commitment itself? Uh, he says that people like Tim Keller would say, well, atheists should doubt their own doubts because atheism is just much as much a, 
um, as a leap of faith as the Christian belief in God. To say that there is no God is just much of a leap of faith because you cannot prove that God does not exist. But uh, first, he says, well, what would Keller, what method would he apply <laughs> to saying whether God or God doesn't exist or does exist? He said, you know, that leaves us with nothing, just relativism. But we, what we need is something more empirical. And then he says, but I don't agree with Keller anyway, because atheism is not a religion. Uh, as one person said, that's like saying, um, that's like saying not collecting stamps is a hobby. <laughs> uh, think about that. Not collecting stamps is a hobby. So atheism is not a religious or a, a faith commitment because it's not a belief in anything. It's a stance that it does not exist. And it's just using the skeptical method toward everything like gravity. And what it has come to the conclusion of is that simply atheists believe in one less God than Christians. Ricky Gervais often made the joke that, you know, he didn't believe in 2,778 gods and the Christian believed in 2,777 gods. I mean, didn't believe in 2,777 gods. So he's just like, we just don't believe in one at more. <laughs> um, and so he's saying atheism is not a religion. Uh, Anyway, there's too much variance among atheists. I mean, there's even atheistic Buddhists because Buddhism is based on an atheist principle that there is no God. <clears throat> and also he's saying that this type of skepticism has led uh, that, yeah, you can't be skeptical about everything. If you're, if you're wanting to be skeptical about everything and, and want the skeptic to be so skeptical that they end up believing in nothing because what there, it has produced not only repeatable experiments, but it has produced amazing results. And so we can have a common ground of logic, math, our senses, um, theories like gravity, and even a small core of ethics that are transcultural. And so he feels that atheists have succeeded in passing the OTF. Not that they need to take it, but they have succeeded. It's their whole premise is that the OTF is the basis of why um, uh, why it's true that their skepticism bears out. <clears throat> and then lastly, um, this is, for some reason, he has seven objections, but then he has a whole section just according to one guy named Ruppert. Ruppert's objections. So I don't know why he has a whole section just de dedicated to this Christian thinker named Ruppert, who I've never heard of before, but he asked Luftus that, well, if you apply the OTF in an Eastern culture where they would say that reality, material reality is an illusion, then there's, they would pass the OTF with that skepticism that even material reality is an illusion. And so what does leftists have to say about that? And he said, well, not only was I taught that there was an external world, I experience it daily. And if I deny it, then I deny science and the method altogether. And he says, it's more extraordinary to say that reality does not exist than to say it does. Um, yeah, he says other things, but I won't go into it. <clears throat> but then let me... Um, come to this quote before I respond. 
So he says, is it an extraordinary claim for atheists to say with Carl Sagan that the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be? By finding the evidence lacking for the extraordinary claims that supernatural entities exist, the atheists simply concluded these claims are false. So saying that, what he's saying there in those two quotes is that material reality is all that there is, all that there ever was, and all that there ever will be. And it's from the grounds of the material world that we come to understand everything else, even religious beliefs. And the OTF bears that out. <clears throat> okay. I have my response in there. One moment. Ah, uh, here it is. <clears throat> You'll be happy. I didn't see it because it looks so brief. Okay, so <clears throat> how might we respond to Loftus's <clears throat> OTF and his skepticism and to his atheism? You know, first I want to say, and I'm very interested to see what you think about these things before in the next following weeks, we're going to apply, he's going to apply the OTF to the resurrection, to the goodness of God, to the Bible and so forth. But to get started, I want to think about how to think about the man and uh, this idea. First, I want to say that I wanna take Loftus very seriously. Uh, I saw him in debates with some Christian pastors and to be frank, I was, a, I was quite frustrated. Not because I thought that the answers were wrong, so in, but I just felt that the posture was not Christian. I just felt that it was a one-upmanship of, of the pastor. Yeah, the pastor just seemed like they were trying to, uh, they were arrogating their response. It was just, they were not, it didn't seem humble and it seemed almost, uh, and what Loftus often does is come into the churches to debate the pastors. Um, now, I believe that this man was deeply hurt. I couldn't verify this, but people had been writing that, and maybe it came from his book, Why I Became an Atheist. But he was having doubts, uh, then had uh, an affair, uh, was removed, and then the Christian community basically rejected him. And he felt no loving response in the midst of his doubts. So I think that this man has probably been deeply injured. Now, I don't say that because it has anything to do with my response uh, with the critical ideas he's presenting. I'm saying it because I think it's, I imagine if this guy went through such harm and then goes in and is so passionate about trying to deconvert Christians that he would go into the churches and put up with the arrogance of the pastors, I feel that, and uh, that it only reconfirms his own fears and doubts. And I feel that, you know, ultimately that's not how we should treat this man. We should treat him as someone bearing dignity because as a Christian, I believe God has made him and has made him with dignity and therefore he should be treated as such. Even God says he treats his an enemies with, with rain and sun and bearing gifts of life and goodness uh, and so I think as Christians, we should also bear that in mind, even when someone is being an anti-apologist.
<clears throat> so I take him very seriously. Uh, now, I also take his idea seriously of the need for an outsider test for faith. <clears throat> because if we don't take it seriously, then we're just simply guilty of what he's claiming we're doing is that we want to not, we want to ignore those things so we can simply believe what we believe. We don't want to think about why we believe what we believe unless we take his idea seriously. Also, I believe in the idea of something called common grace. Now, this is an idea that it's not just the person who believes in God that is able to speak truth, but that because God has made all things, he has made all people, that God's truth can be proclaimed um, out of the mouths of a donkey. <laughs> uh, in I think it's in Judges, Numbers, I can't remember, but... Uh, but one of Israel's uh, or one of the prophets of the other nations basically uh, ends up through Balaam's donkey ends up having a uh, uttering a prophetic sta um, statement to Israel from God. Uh, and so it was coming from their enemies. And, you know, we see that time and again, where truth comes from outside of God's people and often in, criticism of God's people that they need to hear. And so I think common grace is a very important thing. And I listened to this guy. I could simply wave him off as saying, oh, he's just a hurt. He's a hurt man who failed in his Christian faith. And therefore, I'm not going to give him the time of day. Uh, but I want to hear his pain because it's a real thing and that he has something true to say. And then also, I think that we just need to accept that Christians need to take a check on why they believe what they believe. Why do you believe what you believe? Why did you come to believe what you believe? And why do you still believe what you believe? And do you apply any critical lens on that? And what critical lens do you use? Okay, bearing in that mind, is the OTF successful is it something that is useful for the christian and this is where i'm going to diverge because i think it is not at all helpful for the christian and so i, I want to later suggest that an outsider test is important that this outsider test is not helpful uh, the reason is is because there's so many things that are implied by what he says rather than what he says the three things, well, he, I think there are three examples, but oh. they could have been the three complete tests is uh, no biblical revelation or no Bible quoting. Um, so to defend the resurrection of God, the Trinity, incarnation, blah, blah. Don't argue from the Bible. Uh, be critical of Christian works or listen to criticisms of Christianity. And then also uh, question your own social conditions, culturally, psychologically, and so on. Um, but I don't think that his, even though he says those three things, that's not, what is the basis for his OTF? Uh, it's not neutral. It's based on atheistic materialism. Now I've spoken on this many times, but, but materialism again is this notion that what, when he quoted Carl Sagan is, uh, the world as it is, is always as it was, as it will end, as it will be the material reality even in the three chapters looking at cultural and psychological reasons or conditions for faith, 
is to suggest that because one becomes a Christian through a cultural, um, if you look at people becoming a Christian through a cultural lens, uh, it is supposed by the end of that, the conclusion is, therefore it is only a cultural expression. Or if someone has come to believe through psychological conditions, out of vulnerability, out of a need for community, is to suppose that it is merely a psychological condition and not true. But uh, I would suggest just because something is culturally conditioned or psychologically conditioned does not make it necessarily false. And so, <clears throat> and then I believe secondly that he fails to see his own cultural embeddedness. Time and again throughout this essay, uh, sometimes I wonder if he is the best proponent for this, but that's, I wasn't picking this up because I thought it was an easy book. I just thought it was a book I wanted to deal with, but perhaps some people argue better than what Loftus argues from the same point of view. I'm not sure, but I believe that he fails to see his own cultural embeddedness uh, as, as favoring modern science or in modern skepticism in such a way as to not question it as if it somehow is no in no need of the OTF. And secondly, that he doesn't see that it is the very basis of the OTF. Um, you know, there was uh, a young girl on Bowen Island that she, basically what they do at this school is phenomenal. They have to write a, basically a master's as 13 year olds. Uh, and they have to take a giant topic write 60, 50, 60 pages, and then present it before the whole island. And there's about eight students uh, per class. Um, and so each year, eight students have to do this. Well, this one girl had the question, is absolute truth possible? She couldn't find anyone who had any notion of how to even address this. And someone suggested me. She was very upset because she didn't want a Christian. <laughs> uh, and she basically was arguing from Dawkins and Dennett and Harris and uh, because absolute truth was obviously false. And I said, well, um, I said, how do you know that? And she, you know, she pointed to Dawkins and stuff. And I said, well, then what, how can you explain that the majority of the world and other cultures believe in a God? Uh, that Christianity and Islam are so prominent. Is it because everyone is so stupid that, you know, and that a 13 year old has figured this out, what the rest of the world hasn't? And she was shocked that I was really kind of <laughs> giving it to her. And I was really impressed by the end when she presented her thesis to the island. She said um, she went through Foucault and amazing people. And it wasn't too far off, but she said what she's learned in the end is that she needs to be humble in our approach toward truth. Uh, and so she didn't make a claim that absolute truth was possible or not. She just said we should just be humble and keep searching. Well, I feel that that is something that John Loftus has not gotten into a position to. There is times when he says that it's impossible to get out of your cultural embeddedness, but skepticism is the best way that we can. Um, and then, and so I feel that he fails logically, um, but it also, you know, and I'm borrowing from the other three chapters, but he's used them and 
put them in his book as a condition for his own article and basis for the OTF. But materialism, and as Thomas Nagel says, flies in the face of daily experience. That, that if you use the skeptical method, you could say that there's no such thing as a free will, that freedom is an illusion. And yet um, materialism, uh, the way that materialism or strict materialism or the new atheism, which was at his time, particularly, I wonder if he had changed his mind at all in this, but that, um, that there are many things that are not measurable that cannot be placed within the OTF. Are we truly free? Do humans have dignity? We have to be skeptical. Is love really true? And so just because you can find a social condition, uh, it doesn't mean that. And so you can say, well, psychologically, we believe that it's true, which is not to say, say the same thing as it's really true. And if it's psychologically dependent as being true, these emotions, then why not religion? Uh, but what it does is that, you know, as soon as you find a psychological reason for religion, you end up looking for the biological reason for psychology and the physical or the physics um, uh, condition for biology and so on. But we don't, we may believe that we are a collection of atoms, but when we see our child or our um, friends, we don't believe of them as merely a collection of atoms. Because skepticism only goes so far. And so perhaps it's not the right tool to use in regard to religious beliefs. Perhaps it, it's, uh, as one person put it, it's like taking a metal detector and it's really good at finding metal objects, but then to believe that metal detectors can tell you everything about metal objects because it can't. Uh, and so skepticism has a limited use, but I believe that what Loftus has done is taking it too far to believe that he can explain all religious belief away. Okay, so what now? <clears throat> uh, I want to end here by saying, okay, what, how might we think of an outsider test for those who are Christians? How might the Christian question their own reasons for faith? And are they being critical for what they believe and why they believe what they believe? Now, this can be very scary. People say, as soon as you start questioning a little bit, I, we knew <laughs> one, we knew these parents who didn't want to send their daughter off to, um, a church camp or uh, missions like uh, because they were afraid that she might lose her faith. She ended up allowed to go YWAM and end up coming to a different conclusion than her parents. She became reformed and not charismatic and her family felt <laughs> lamented that they, that their daughter was lost to them. Uh, but people can get really scared and it can be scary because some people will, walk away from faith. But, uh, and so sometimes people want to bubble wrap their children and not to challenge and make sure that they stay in belief without giving them any kind of uh, criticism. But as soon as they go to university, they end up losing their faith because they see that there's a whole other realm and a whole other world that criticizes everything that they believe and they're not prepared for that. And because they have not created the apparatus of being critical of their own beliefs and why they believe what they believe. And there are times when we need to question our beliefs. Uh, there can be a complacency in, 
and or uh, there can be a lot of ungodly things done in the name of Christianity. Uh, I would say that uh, a very materialistic wealth can be associated with Christianity is that could be quite unbiblical. And so we need to continually uh, think about why we believe what we believe. And I don't know who said this first, but I think it was Oz Guinness who said, doubt is the handmaiden to faith. Doubt is not the enemy to faith. Doubt is the handmaiden to faith. And so faith is deepened by doubt. Um, and that doubt is saying, why do I believe what I believe? Is it true? If it is true, how could it be true? Then asking those questions can actually deepen that. Uh, you know, the Bible says that don't build your house on sand, build it on a rock. And so I think that what Jesus is calling these people to say is like, yeah, build, build your foundation on me, but make sure that's not built on sand. Make sure it's built on rock so that it can withstand the storms. And so even the Bible is calling us to be questioning and critical and thoughtful and reflective about why we believe what we believe. Um, the Bible says, let's reason together, test the spirits, taste and see. Uh, or Jesus says, touch me. I am not a ghost. And Doubting Thomas puts his hand uh, in the wounds of Jesus. So that's my first thing, is that the importance of needing that outside perspective. Um, now, what outside perspective might we have? Well, at Labrie, one thing that I found is that really being open to other beliefs and people who have their questions. And sometimes people feel quite a freedom when they come to Labrie for the first time within their church that they're able to ask the questions that they really want to ask. They no longer feel guilty for asking them or shamed. One girl was, uh, she came and she always asked really great questions in tutorial. And, uh, and I said, why don't you ever speak at the table? We, would, I really, we really need your voice. And she started crying and pardon my French, but she said, I'm tired of being a shit disturber. Um, sorry about those who speak French. Um, <laughs> uh, we have someone in the room who speaks French, but anyway, uh, this person felt that uh, they were unable to ask because when they did ask their questions, the people in the Bible studies said, and she particularly the last question she ever asked, she goes, well, how do we know that Jesus is even God? which should be a home run question to the home group leader or the Bible study leader or the pastor. But what, what happened is the whole group said, I thought you were a Christian. How can you ask such a question? And that led this woman to no longer believe in Christianity. And so um, we need to leave. And so at Labrie, we try to open up the opportunity for people to ask questions within an environment without shaming them or guilt, um, guilting them. Um, or forcing them because it ends up being exactly what Loft to say it is. It's, it's just cultural coercion or social pressure or something of that nature. Um, yeah, and I, and I would say that <clears throat> here are a couple of other conclusions. Is that sometimes people, when they're arguing for faith, that uh, they'll, they'll make the first cause argument that every effect has a cause, there must be a first cause to all things, uh, or the fine-tune argument, this idea of how can we exist in such a world as this, it's so finely tuned to human life that it seems that it has to be by design, not by accident. Uh, I think that those are fine and good, but 
you know, I heard someone even using these before Loftus and Loftus is like, okay, you use a lot of experience, uh, a lot of arguments, but basically you just cause one to believe the God of the philosophers, not the Christian God. Uh, it's something nebulous and, and what kind of God is, what kind of God do I need to believe in that? Like just because you, and so the Christian needs to go beyond just finding these arguments of these kind of classic apologetic arguments and actually go further. And so Schaefer would say the true apologetic is love. Love is the final apologetic. Now, this does not mean that we should not use reason because Christians, and as I just said earlier, let us reason together, taste and see. And so uh, even doubting Thomas was not rejected in his doubts of Jesus as Jesus stood before him, but Jesus encouraged him to test and see. Uh, he didn't make Thomas feel ashamed for doubting and, and actually encouraged him in his, his pursuit and which encouraged him in his faith. And so uh, because the, the, the end goal is not belief in God. That is not the end goal of apologetics because the Bible would say even the demons believe that God exists and shudder. Uh, so belief in God is not the end goal. Uh, the end goal for the Christian is to call someone to repentance so that they might receive the mercy that God is so eagerly able to give them and wants to give them. Uh, and so it's not just trying to argue someone to rationally believe, but, but we use reason along those lines so that people might believe, but they can't just be reasons without emotions. That's where I think that Loftus goes too far to say, well, emotion shouldn't get involved in it, but a, a reasons without emotions is psychopaths, you know, uh, emotions are actually important parts of what it means to be human. And so I would say love and, uh, and vulnerability and all these things are not necessarily conditions that make it more false, but more whole to the person who receives it. So it is reasonable, but beyond reason. It's the whole person that is being received. Um, uh, um, or at least Christians want the whole person uh, to recognize it, not just their minds. Um, okay, so that's where I have to end. Um, let's open it up to questions. Uh, oh, sorry, OTF is, <laughs> sorry, someone asked, what is OTF? And they joined later. Sorry, uh, I, I mentioned it three times at the beginning. I said, okay, I'm not going to repeat it again. OTF is the outsider test for faith. And the outsider test for faith is that we need to look at Christianity through the same lens that we look at, that the Christian might look at Mormonism, for instance. Uh, and so we're skeptical of the claims of Mormons because dot, dot, dot. Therefore, Christians need to be as critical toward their own faith. Uh, and, and if so, then this outsider test for faith will inevitably show that you need to be a skeptic. So that's what OTF means, outsider test for faith. Okay, Liz has a question, even though she wasn't slated to, but she can't help herself. <laughs> and I'll try to repeat her question. Yeah, it's gonna blow your mind So something that's, a few things that are coming to mind for hearing here is one thing that Milton Bright said in the classic book, which is 
why start with the hermeneutic of suspicion rather than a hermeneutic of wonder? Yes. And so basically saying like, why do you think that the most true thing is to be suspicious rather than to like, yes. to have wonder at, at the things that we encounter? And then, and then well, hold later. on. So let me repeat that just in case. Uh, so Liz was saying that there was a professor, a poet, Malcolm Gait, who said that why do we start with hermeneutics of suspicion rather than a hermeneutics of wonder? Uh, why is suspicion, in a sense, seen as prior or more valid? Yeah, right. And then the other thing was I was just thinking about um, uh, a book that I haven't read yet that's called, we talked about it, but. Um, Called, it's talking about critical theory and it's called like, like critical crossout cynical theories. Yes. And I read the first chapter, but it's sort of talking about like um, interpreting everything through this deconstructionist lens mm. that is like always tearing things down and being cynical. And though it's not the same thing as skeptical, but um, it just, yeah, so, so it's all about like seeing through everything, but mm. it's not very much about like what is it for? And you kind of pointed to that. So, to me, that seems to be a real gap like this idea of, yeah. of, of meaning and wonder and beauty and like you were saying, like emotions and things like that. Nice. You know, like he loves science, but what about the arts, which are, do a lot to make life bearable? Mm. Like, uh, so yeah, just- it's Right, yeah. So yeah, just a real quick quote before I don't, so I don't forget. C.S. Lewis said, um, uh, friendship doesn't cause us to survive, but it gives, but it makes us want to survive or something like that, or it makes survival meaningful. Uh, so in addition to this hermeneutics of suspicion versus hermeneutics of wonder, she said that she's starting to read a book called Cynical uh, Theory, which is, a, which is a book that is criticizing critical theory, um, which is a book that I'm fascinated to read as well. But it begins by saying that cynicism has become the lens through which to interpret everything, to deconstruct everything in society. Uh, and so it seems to be a negative way of approaching things rather than, uh, rather than positive things of the contribution of the arts, of beauty, of truth and love. And so what might we do with that? So I can see how those two are related because I do believe that cynicism is a temptation for the skeptic, but I don't, I want to say skepticism and cynicism are not the same thing. Uh, cynicism is a temptation even for Christians. Uh, cynicism is this, um, this belief that you can see through everything and almost see through to nothing. And that it's just all meaningless. Um, it's kind of like, what teenagers often do with their parents, no matter what their parents do. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I see through it all. It's all a scam. Um, but uh, of course they, then when they grow up, they have to realize they have to make something of themselves and they realize it's not so easy. And so the cynic has to give way to wisdom. Otherwise they stay in perpetual immaturity uh, and they end up not, you know, one thing that I do when people come critical of Christianity or, uh, and people will say, I'm critical of this and critical of that and critical of this. And I'm often like N.T. Wright, someone, you know, uh, the Bishop of Durham at the time, people would come in and have to see him as they began their studies. And there was like, I don't know why I have to be here. I don't believe in God. And N.T. Wright is like, what God do you not believe in? 
and they would start telling him what God they don't believe in. He goes, I don't believe in that God either. Can we talk? Uh, and so <clears throat> what I often do is that when someone is very critical and critical, critical, I say, okay, it's easy to knock something down. Can you tell me what you believe? What are you for? And that's where they often pause or hesitate. It's very hard because they know how easy for their own beliefs to be knocked down. Um, now, and so that's really cynicism, and, but it becomes really easy. Uh, it's just like a child. It's easy to knock something down because it's so hard to build something up. Uh, it's easier to hurt than it is to heal. Um, and so it takes work and hardness, uh, 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 difficulty, is what I mean, to do good. And I think that people don't have the patience or the endurance or the perseverance for the good or for the lovely. Um, but when we do, it's so much worth it. Now, skepticism is different from cynicism because skepticism uh, is, uh, I mean, there's different types of definition. Um, but the way I see skepticism is it is trying to go to what is un irrefutable so that you can go to what is the most reduced form and then work up from there. So Cartesian doubt is, is a form of skepticism. What can I say is really real? And so Descartes came to the conclusion, I think, therefore I am. So he, I exist, at least I could be living in a dream, but I know that I'm living in a dream at least. So he started with that. And then he had other forms of bases of memory and other things. But uh, so skepticism is just trying to the basics and then work up from that. Uh, but you're right. I mean, we have become prey to hermeneutics of suspicion rather than trusting that someone has something to offer us or that they could be saying something true, even if we don't like it. Um, and yeah. Yeah, because I'm not disagreeing with, with what he says, but meaning of skepticism yes. is just that I think that also needs to go along with the sense of, of openness to wonder and mystery and beauty absolutely yeah so yeah liz was saying that it's not just she's not against loftus's view of skepticism or need for skepticism we need that but we also need to be open to wonder beauty and trust and love and that's where i think nagel felt that new atheism went is that it was so skeptical that it didn't leave room for love and trust and that's why i think that's where the new atheists most failed is that they were not offering something more uh, I think Jordan Peterson, Alan David Tom, and others are trying to offer something more. Thomas Nagel as well. And so there are people who are, who are agnostic or atheists who are trying to offer something more than just the skepticism because they see that. Um, but it is proving difficult. Anyone else have a question? Yes, Greg? Yeah, I, I'm interested in the argument about skepticism because uh, I, I agree with what you said that, you know, that a person should be skeptic, skeptic about their atheistic belief. Now, uh, Loftus there is saying he's an agnostic. Well, that's just a straight cop out because how, either, you, you know, if, if you're going to actually really think about this thing, you know, whether, whether there's, I'd like to start, I heard the term recently in a book I read, a cosmic intelligence, you know, so we're just talking about you know, theistic belief, not Christian belief, just theistic beliefs. And so if you're going to really think about that, 
you must be able to look at and you want to, through reason, look at the evidence, come to one conclusion or the other. Either atheism is true or uh, theism as, as there, there is a cosmic intelligence or, the, or there's no cosmic intelligence. And so, and when you do that, you should be skeptical about either view. Because I mean, my own personal point of view is I couldn't be, muster enough faith to be atheistic. I mean, to think that, you know, we can get intelligence, the sense of beauty, a sense of love and everything from strictly mindless bits of energy or particles, you know, and that, that all, all, all these emotions and they d develop, well, you know, or, or life itself. I, I don't have a problem with evolution, but I mean, evolution itself is, is, is a beautiful process. It's an incredible process. And that that would just come from mindlessness, you know? So I think you have to be skeptical about atheistic beliefs as well. And I th to me, I, th I, I think the argument for, uh, a the for theistic belief is much more rational than the argument for uh, atheistic belief. And then if you come to the conclusion that, uh, that, yeah, okay, there is a cosmic intelligence, then basically all religion is trying to find what we can learn about that cosmic intelligence, whether it be Christianity, Islam, or any, or any other faith, what does it mean to our life? How should that impact our life and so on? And uh, so Christianity is a type of theism that goes, that goes on to explain that. And we do that through the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to say, doesn't it occur to you that it's God, by the way, who said, come, let us reason together. What a humble thing for our creator to say to us, don't you think? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that... Uh, it yeah, or that, you know, and Jesus embodied that, that, you know, that he came to his people and also even after his death, that he, he knew that they would be suspicious and that he offered his own body as evidence and, and desired for them to understand and was patient with the disciples' misunderstanding. Uh, in fact, quite stupid. <laughs> Uh, in many ways, of course, it, it's only stupid to us now. I think back, uh, you know, I'm stupid on a daily basis. But, um, but I think that I do stupid things on a daily basis is what I mean. Um, but, yeah, that, that God would humble himself because we do not know what we do. Come let us reason together. It's like us talking to a, a ladybug or something. You know, I mean, we can't talk on the same level as God at all. So come let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet. I just think he's so humble. Yeah. yeah. Um, so does Locke just... <laughs> oh, hold on. Is that in response to that? No, we're going to say something. No, there's someone, there's a couple people over it. Okay, one second. Uh, Brett. Yeah, just to, to mention that, uh, thanks for all the things you've said, and I, and I think the whole point about seeing reality as being more than the empirical uh, scientific reality, that there is, a, there is a whole scope of reality. But even just looking at his uh, methodology, if um, that, that by excluding the historical dimension, uh, I don't think that's a rational approach, uh, because in, in, in that, we can look at the possibility of eyewitnesses 
and to automatically just out of hand dismiss the Bible or dismiss as having no value whatsoever, that to me seems irrational. Uh, why wouldn't you look at, at, at people who, who were living at the time uh, or, or testimonies of people who talked to them, etc.? Why is that illogical? Why would you exclude those um, th that evidence? Uh, and what's interesting is that um, being a person who came from a non-believing environment, and it would be interesting to see what uh, uh, Luftus would say about C.S. Lewis and about Francis Collins and so on, uh, Francis Collins being a, a superb scientist, et cetera, et cetera. But I was convinced by the evidence by reading in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, that's, anyway, I think that's a huge flaw in his argument to discount uh, the social sciences. Mm -hmm. Tom, did you want to follow up on that? Yes, I did. Well done, Brett. I think that uh, I was I was surprised that Lo you, you had said that Loftus uh, said that we couldn't, a Christian could not bring the Bible into the discussion as proof. And I guess that would assume that would also mean writings of the early church fathers. It would also mean uh, extra biblical things such as Josephus, which would mean it's like going to court and saying that we're going to go to court together, but uh, none of your evidence is admissible, only mine. So for some reason, uh, uh, the skeptic gets to use a world of information where the Christian is has boundaries put around him. Hmm. Yeah, Carl. You're speaking as I'm speaking as a non-believer myself, um, but yeah, I agree with that statement as well. Um, I think what would be a fair, if someone wanted to do that experiment where they're trying to look at Christianity as an outsider, it would be fair to look at the documents, but treat them as books written by humans. So, like when we read any other book, we treat it as a book written by a human. Um, and and not treat it as though it's inspired. Now, if there's someone comes to some sort of evidence or belief or reason to believe it's more, but to to try to take a more skeptical eye, I think that would be a more fair approach. And about, uh, I don't think maybe I, should, I don't know whether to get into this or not, but. Um, The label atheism is a really weird label because people are defining themselves with respect to a non-existent, an, an entity they believe to be non-existent. So yeah. it's just kind of a weird term. And I, when it you get technical about it, um, and this is what most pretty much any atheist will say, they're not saying they can prove that God doesn't exist because from a philosophical perspective, technically speaking, that's not possible to prove the absence of something. Like if you if if you're, if you want to determine whether there's a spider in your in your room, if you find the, the spider, you can be very sure that it exists. But if you don't find the spider, um, it's very hard to prove that there's no spider in the room. And God is even more. The concept of God is even harder to grab onto than a spider by a long shot. So um, for someone to be an atheist saying God doesn't exist, that's that's a very tricky proposition. But 
there's all sorts of things, hypothetical entities that we don't believe in, like most of us don't believe there's unicorns or like Pegasus or, you know, any number of myriad of, of fantastical things. And we, with respect to those things, we are, you know, a unicornists. And uh, we don't necessarily define ourselves that way, but it's perfectly reasonable to say like, I'm pretty sure that unicorns don't exist. And, uh, but like, what's the big deal? Like why, why even say that there might be other planets where they actually do? So who knows, but you know, like it's a kind of a weird question. And so for someone who doesn't believe, I think it's helpful to try to deal with that question that Clark brought up about um, what do you believe and try to figure out a way to build on that rather than um, try to tear other people's beliefs apart. Like maybe there's a role for some people to do that kind of thing, but I think for people personally, it's helpful to move on um, because people obviously feel the need to believe in all sorts of things for which there is, you know, we can't be very certain of even like, you know, love, all sorts of things. So um, for me, it's very much a live and let live kind of thing. That's very well said, Carl. That's what I was going to say. Well said, Carl. <laughs> Thank you. I've, I've thought about this a lot. I was really curious how this would go because to question yourself, your belief, your own beliefs from the outside is I think a very helpful thing to do uh, in principle. Like I don't necessarily use exactly the same criteria that Loftus does, but, but I think it's an interesting exercise. I like to do it. Um, and so I was really curious what this community would do with that question. So it's, it's interesting. But neither case is belief. You know, you, you you believe one thing or the other without without you can't have absolute knowledge. Whether you're going to reject any uh, any god or or accept that there is a god. Well, I don't know. Like, I don't. It doesn't fall into binary those kind of categories for me. Like, like there's many 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 definitions of god. There, like as I see it. There are as many conceptions as, of God as there are believers on the planet. And, you know, a lot of those beliefs are fairly similar. But the more I talk to people, the more I realize people think very, very differently. So the whole idea that there's one concept of God and then there's a yes or no answer to that is a really, like a really, really strange thing to me. I think it's almost an illusion that, like, it's not an illusion, but... But that, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm saying, though, because you know, that's why I use that term cosmic intelligence. So it's just a generic, you know, um, mind, if, if you like, that is responsible for the fact that we exist without uh, defining it. When you go into, when you go into Christianity or, or Islam or any other a religion, then you're defining the attributes of that cosmic intelligence. But whether this cosmic intelligence exists or not, it's a, ma it's a matter of belief without doing anything to uh, determine the nature of well, such intelligence. I think we can say 
I feel like there has to be some kind of greater power, but, or some greater intelligence, but like for me is how, how, what criteria would I use to distinguish that intelligence being actually outside me and whether that's a projection of my own mind. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know how to, how a person could in principle demonstrate that. Lisa? Yeah, I think that's the, I, I think about that all the time. Um, all the time when I question my fate that often comes to mind um, that there are so, like what you said, there's as many different con conceptions. God, conceptions of God as there are people on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, because I know, yeah, I mean, other Christians of other denominations and they went to school in Alberta and, um, and even just a Christian here thinks differently than a, a little differently than a Christian there. And, uh, and then, yeah, so even within the, within Christianity, there are so many different understandings of God mm -hmm. um, and how to know if, whether or not God is, yeah, just the way, what you said, uh, um, a, concept of my own mind I've created but I I don't know I, I think that God made us so unique all of us that it's inevitable that we um like think about God differently but I also think that I don't know there are also some absolutes and I guess that's what I just have to come back to uh, that kind of God in is so much bigger than we can understand. And somehow he has allowed all of humanity to, um, yeah, live the Christian life a little differently. I don't know. I, I just want to say like, it probably sounds very confusing what I'm saying because it's not completely, um, I understand. I think that you articulated it well. You know, what, what I believe is, you know, God is, as I was saying, God is beyond human reason. It's not that God can be boxed in through a rational theorem. And that, uh, and furthermore, that we as human beings are finite. Uh, we cannot know all things. We cannot, you know, the Bible says that God is, you know, has no beginning, has no end. <laughs> uh, and that is beyond our concept of what is possible. And that God does not have, um, that God was not caused. That is not a concept that we can imagine. And so God is beyond categories that our finite minds can know. The Christian would further go to say that we are sinful and that our mind, that our knowledge only partial and opaque. It's opaque because we're finite and it's opaque because of uh, the sinful condition of each of, of humanity. And so it shouldn't be surprising that there are all these disagreements and divergence in how we think about even the Christian God, which is completely consistent with what the Bible says. It's, it's, and so some people think, well, if one pastor disagrees with another pastor, therefore it must be relative. Or must be untrue but one could be correct both could be wrong 
or in some cases, they're both speaking partial truth. Uh, and so uh, we need to recognize that difference is not necessarily a def uh, is not necessarily a fault. It's just it's simply the condition that we have before a God that is greater than our minds. Um, because our minds, in fact, it's our minds cannot be, and this is where reason fails, is that we try to use it a leverage in order to see behind God. But if God created the mind, there's no way that the mind can leverage to get behind God. It can only go so far as God allows it to go. <clears throat> and so we'll always be somehow short in our, in our knowledge of who God is and what God has done. And that's why the Christian depends on revelation. Uh, and it makes reason why we depend on revelation for that. I think reason. My, my favorite Christian uh, scholar is uh, N.T. or Tom Wright. And he often says, I mean, this is a guy who spent his whole lifetime studying stuff. And he often says in his, in his uh, lectures is that about, about a third he's confident that about a third of what he, he says is wrong. The problem being, he just doesn't know which third it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so it isn't absolute answers. We just have to sort out what it is we believe. I don't know if this is a true, but apparently Aquinas, you know, which is one of the greatest thinkers in Christian history and, within, and, and has shaped not just Christian tradition, but has shaped philosophy and uh, Western culture. But he said upon his death, uh, he was nearing death, and apparently he had this sight of heaven before he, before he died and said, my work is but straw. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The only person I know who's got the theology completely correct is myself. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I don't listen to you at all. Okay, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can't hear you, Brett. Thanks, Greg. Uh, no, I've forgotten what I was going to say. It was something really wise. <laughs> oh, yes, I know what, what it was. It'd be interesting to know. Um, uh, you can't pry into people's situations. But in, in my experience, a, a lot of why you don't believe something, as well as what you believe, is culturally or emotionally or psychologically conditioned. So I think for the author to discount his own cultural and psychological conditioning, um, why would he, you know, say that he is immune from having his own background? Uh, well, well, in his defense, he does not say that he's totally immune, okay. but he doesn't fully apply the test to himself because he thinks that uh, his test is something that's not just from him personally, but from a tradition of skepticism, uh, that it is something that is beyond just his own cultural embeddedness. But yes, I do still feel that he doesn't apply the test fully enough and is not, uh, does not fully fess up to his cultural embeddedness. So I agree, but just in his defense, yeah. that he, does, he does seem to recognize it, but not apply it fully. Yeah, because I was going to say, what is his denominational background and whether it was, you know, kind of excluded any questioning and that kind of stuff, because the denomination, it, it, it he, came, 
He came from a questioning nomination? No, he came from, if I'm not mistaken, uh, like an Anabaptist tradition, and there was not uh, the intellectual rigor. Yeah, because he should come from another tradition like ours, which has tons of questioners. And, uh, you know, um, it's, I'm speaking of Anglicanism, where we take reason very, very seriously. And, and I would say some people take it too seriously. Um, but we have great battles within the church be precisely because um, people have different perspectives and we are conditioned to have people with different mm -hmm. perspectives. And uh, I would say very easily, for instance, in terms of church uh, questions, that uh, uh, Jesus was both a liberal and a conservative, that Jesus asked questions, the liberals ask questions, conservatives don't ask questions on the whole. Um, but. Uh, but I say, we need the liberals to ask the questions, but let the conservatives give the answers. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but the conservatives need to hear the questions and the liberals need to hear the answers. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Fred. Yes. Uh, this author was not the first to notice uh, cultural embeddedness. <clears throat> God was, was ahead of him quite a bit. When uh, Moses said to uh, the Israelites, be sure to teach your children mm. all the time. So. And, and I, yes, that's, that's good. But, but what is the, I'm trying to understand why. Are you just saying that, that this is not a new, new insight and therefore it doesn't have bearing? Or what do you mean by that? Oh, I just, I mean, it's not at all a new insight. Uh, so he's he's treading on old ground, uh, so he needs to go beyond that. Right. Yeah, I, I think that one of the problems is that sometimes people, you know, think that the ancients were just superstitious, uh, believed anything that came, and they were just dumb-witted, and and so there's this chronological snobbery, as if the ancients didn't have enough merit or enough reasonable thought that uh, they couldn't have come up what was true and what was false, um, what was believable, what was unbelievable. And so, and the second thing is, okay, soon as we have a new philosophical or scientific term to it, uh, like a cultural embeddedness or uh, whatever kind of thesis they might say, and then, but, well, what they do is that to me, it seems that they're using the term to sneak in a philosophy. They're, they're using cultural embeddedness to say, oh, but, but what they suggest by, okay, Christians have become Christians because of cultural embeddedness. Well, no one could really disagree with that uh, as possible, true, likely, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's false because we are all culturally embedded creatures. And so I would, I, like Brad, I, I really would have liked him to have spoken more forthrightly about cultural embeddedness for all of us. Um, and maybe perhaps, but he spent more time arguing against Christianity than he did arguing for skepticism. Mm. You know, just a, a, as an aside, you know, one thing that I didn't bring into it, but GK Chesterton, wrote uh, a book called The Everlasting Man. And he has a great quote at the very beginning um, in his introduction. And 
<clears throat> and I thought that it really reflected Loftus quite well. Um, and he said that uh, um, basically critics of Christianity cannot get out of the penumbra of Christian controversy. They cannot be Christians and they cannot leave off being anti-Christian. Their whole atmosphere is the atmosphere of a reaction, sulks, perversity, petty criticism. They still live in the shadow of the faith and have lost the light of that faith. Uh, it's just interesting that he's saying that the best critic of Christian thought is one who is within. And this, the next best critic is one who is entirely outside. And I bring that up because he's saying the outsider test. He said, but the one who's truly outside would look at Christianity as if they were looking at a Chinese pagoda uh, and that they're completely impartial. And they're like, well, what is, what is that, what they believe and why do they believe what they believe? Um, but when you have one foot in and one foot out, you end up coming with these petty criticisms and in a sense, armed to the teeth, ready to just, um, you know, it's almost being in a fight with your partner as opposed to watching two people having conflict and helping them through it. But when you're involved, it's a lot harder to see clearly. Uh, and so Chesterton seems to suggest the true outsider test is look um, to give a true chance to Christianity, step entirely outside of it, that, uh, that, that someone from, uh, from China in their pagodas might look at it. Of course, he wrote this probably in the 1890s, but, uh, but I think that that is true also, that the Christian could look at their faith in a sense as one would who's entirely outside of it instead of mired in the middle. Hmm. Oh, sorry. No, Liz. Yeah. I was just wondering, like, can you really do that? Can you really step back? Can you really step outside? <clears throat> no, I don't think that you can escape. I do think that you always have to be aware. Uh, and so I agree with Loftus in that. Uh, and you always have to go from a position, but confirmation bias, some people think of it as, so confirmation bias is that uh, you believe something for emotional or whatever reasons, and reason serves that belief. Well, when new data comes up, then some, someone wrote a book about how Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, and they have lots of statistics, for example. Maybe a person reads it and, and basically... Uh, says, oh, this person is a liar, this person doesn't know, and so they're just reconfirming what they already believe. Um, and so new data is always amalgamated into an old system. Uh, now, some people would suggest confirmation bias. This is true not just for the Christians, it's also true for everybody in everyday beliefs. We're constantly reconfirming um, or confirming our bias. And this is actually necessary in some ways. That, oh, uh, I see this person, you know, in the past, you see someone with tattoos, you, you become a bit suspicious uh, and you're reasonably suspicious. Now, of course, there's tattoos everywhere and you become less suspicious, but, uh, but it serves you to say, okay, I'm a little suspicious of this person and I want to find reasons not to be suspicious. Uh, but someone might say, oh, that person is, has tattoos and I think that they're dangerous. Oh no, they're my friend and my family oh, I didn't know that you were dangerous too. <laughs> you know, it's just like we can end up confirming our bias, but not necessarily. I don't think confirmation bias is a iron cage. And so crises in our lives often bring up to us to question why we believe what we believe. 
and also other people's convictions that someone may see the world in an entirely different way. So can we get outside of that bias? Can we get outside of our cultural embeddedness? No, but there are ways to transcend them in the imagination as we allow others in, as we allow crises to redefine um, or to reshape our views. So it is possible, um, but we do have to be open to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like you said, like a crisis is like changing a belief in a crisis. It's like the validation of, of them. Oh, yeah, when he said that someone yeah. becomes a Christian in the midst of vulnerability, discredits its validity or at least uh, makes it more suspect. Well, that's why I almost didn't bring up his personal story. Yeah. I don't know why he doubted and how he came to his conclusions. He doesn't write that. He probably writes that in his why I became an atheist. Yeah. So I don't want to go too far and say that he became an atheist because of a crisis. But I think, but I just, I think like often crisis causes us to just think deeply about Yeah, she's saying a crisis is not necessarily a bad thing. It just makes us re-question our framework. And yes, it's going to be emotional because it's a crisis, but it's not necessarily making that new choice false because of that. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. I, I might have missed it, but did he, so he said that the OTF fails. Did you just say that it failed for him or that it just always fails? And no, no, I'm sorry. That Christian faith fails when, a, when the OTF is applied. Right, right, sorry. I was saying that wrong. That's what I meant. So the Christian faith, does he explain why? Because he, he says there are those three things. Um, yeah, does he say why? Because isn't that, it, shouldn't that be something that is individual to people? Like if we're supposed to apply the test, then shouldn't that be up to the individual whether or not it passes the test or not? I, I, I feel like I'm missing something. How, how can you say that the Christian faith just fails the test? Well, he, he's not saying that it will always fail, inevitably fail, but he thinks that it probably should fail because of, of how, how it was for him. And he thinks that if someone approaches it with complete honesty, it should fail. Uh, the reason he thinks that is because, <clears throat> because what I was saying of his presuppositions for the OTF in the first place, it is that he only allows naturalistic explanations. And so if you're only going to study naturalistic explanations, so, so he says that it leads to agnosticism, but I want to say it leads to agnosticism because it's based on agnostic beliefs and that it does not allow for non-naturalistic explanations. Uh, it seems like he even discredits psychological or cultural explanations. Uh, yep. It seems to defeat the purpose of, of questioning your faith if, if he's saying that if you question your faith, you're going to find that it's not, it doesn't stand up. Well, it's not going to stand up if you apply only naturalistic explanations, because once you apply naturalistic explanations, then you're going to realize that it is nothing but natural, uh, naturalistic. Does that make sense? It, it, it makes sense. It just it just seems like he's jumping 
passed a lot of things to get there. Like to yeah. then to then say because then then he's saying he's making the claim that only not he's not just making the claim that we need to test our faith. He's making the claim that only in natural we can only approach religion, faith from a naturalist perspective. Which, which That's it. That's because it. because faith is out is like we can't see God. We don't know. Yeah. So. I, so he's not just asking Christians to test their faith, okay. but he's, he's asking them to question uh, its validity because he thinks that it's not valid. Can you give an example of naturalistic expectation? Uh, I, mean, I want to make sure I'm understanding this. Correctly. Okay, so in the previous three chapters, there are cultural... Um, reason for why someone became a Christian uh, and then psychological. So for example, um, the, the person who got a doctorate in psychology says that, uh, that there were in a need of vulnerability, that they were more uh, accepting of extraordinary claims without going through them reasonably, without using reason, and therefore they, they uh, basically believed in them, but for psychological reasons, for emotional reasons. So now, he would say, now that goes, but what is beyond that? And so someone, and I would say, well, just because someone believes it for emotional reasons doesn't necessarily make it wrong, mm -hmm. but he goes further, it's, it's an assumption that because there's a psychological explanation, that it is therefore a non-religious reason, that it is, uh, it's not based on truth or it's not based on rational truth, it's based on just an emotion or a feeling. Now, in many ways we would say, well, just because I love Santa Claus doesn't mean that he exists. Mm -hmm. uh, and no matter how many tantrums I throw, I still want Santa to come and I still want to put a cookie out. But my feelings are not enough. I need reasons. And he's saying, uh, you know, well, not he, but the people he have who contributed to this book uh, and what he would agree with is that if you can give a psychological explanation, then that ends up giving the reason for faith, not because it's true. Uh, and so we see that all the time. And, and so you would see a naturalistic, uh, naturalistic explanation for love uh, or romance. I, I point to this Time magazine from 2008 or something like that called The Science of Romance and saying, you know, you're not actually really desiring your, your mate. You're just attracted to a certain shape that helps our species survive. <laughs> uh, now we have to pretend that, uh, that someone wants flowers or cards or dinners out. Um, but if we are to know the real truth, it's just, we're just trying to pass on our genes. Uh, and, and so that's a naturalistic explanation. And so people would say that's a reductionism of, of all that is involved, um, but I would say, yes, I mean, maybe we are attracted to certain shapes, 
you know, upside down triangles, pears or apples or whatever. Julia tells me fruits of women. I don't know, but um, some kind of shape, but uh, that there are explanations. Yeah, that might be true. And that might be the case, but it doesn't explain everything away. And that's where naturalistic explanation goes too far, in my opinion. And that's where it becomes, it sneaks in that philosophy. It sneaks in that religious or faith commitment that uh, if you explain something naturalistically, then therefore you've explained a way why it exists. Thank you. I think I understand now, but matter where he's coming from. Yeah. So he thinks he's explained away religion. Uh, and if the Christian just applied their skepticism toward their own faith, then they would find that it is also that it can be explained away just as they explain other religions away. Okay. I know for me, it, it's important to, uh, to, to read the work of uh, atheists and that sort of thing. Uh, like I actually, I really enjoy Christopher Hitchens, you know, as, uh, and, um, uh, Dawkins, not so much. I find Dawkins kind of unpleasant. <laughs> but uh, Hitchens is, you know, I found him personable and very bright. And, you know, so when he raises concerns, you know, you know, I listen to him and then I've got to, um, you know, come up with a rationale for why I still believe what I believe in spite of what he says, you know, particularly, you know, he, he, you know, he talks about, you know, the stuff that Christians have done and stuff, you know, he talks about certain passages in the, in the Bible. Uh, and so on and so forth. So I have to, you know, work around that, you know, or, you know, uh, take time and read, you know, Dawkins is a God delusion. And then, and then, it's, and then it's worth while reading McGrath's, you know, Dawkins del delusion, which he wrote in response. Oh, right. You know? and, but yeah, uh, I think that's true. I think that that is an outsider test for our own faith. I mean, that's why I read books like The Christian Delusion. Um, yeah. It's exactly. not, not taking it up just to bat it bat it down but i want to take him seriously i want to take his ideas seriously and work them out yeah. uh, and i actually enjoy a lot more books by atheists than i do by christians mm -hmm. uh unless it's, unless it's a really profound christian thought i find so many christian books very quite shallow yeah, uh, or just preaching to the choir um but i do find some books deeply wise and push me to consider things more deeply, but I find that when I read books by atheists and uh, skeptics that I am challenged to think about why I believe what I believe. Yeah, I, I, you know, Brett says, you know, that the liberals ask, ask, ask the questions, and I think he's right, but I go further than that and say, I think many times atheists ask the right questions, you know, and, and it, it, it's how we can respond to that, because I, you know, I mean, the, the obvious example is the problem of evil. How, how do we, as, as believers in a loving God, underst understand the suffering and everything in the world? And we, you know, and that was something I had to do a lot of reading on, on everything to get my head around that. Now, ultimately, I, I did come to the conclusion that you can have a loving God. And I'm not going to go into details where, you know, where it came that, but that, that, that they are compatible. That the suffering in the world uh, is compatible. You know, I mean, well, we're probably going to deal with that with the ch the part, uh, the goodness of God. That will be part. That will be in two weeks' time. Well, you know, I look forward to that. I really enjoyed your talk today. By the way, it was great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, next week we're going to deal with uh, the Bible is not God's word. That's yeah. Uh, so. and, and what that what it even means when you say it's, it's God's word. Yes. Uh, I think that's what drew me to reading 
Dr. Schaefer's works was that he did take these people seriously mm-hmm. uh, and, and it seemed to give them, uh, bring their ideas into the respect for the idea and then why he doesn't agree with the idea. But uh, uh, I think that's what kind of led me to this was, was these people uh, taking them seriously and what they're saying, and we should take them seriously. Um, yeah, there's a famous story uh, Ellis Potter gives. Ellis Potter was a Buddhist monk for 20 years and very, uh, very much seeking about spirituality and heard about this quote unquote guru on the mountain and decided to go up on the mountain and challenge Francis Schaeffer. And, uh, and he came around and, and really for Ellis, first of all, it was, he found an amazing amount of community and, and uh, love being demonstrated and, and ideas being taken seriously. So he was captured by that. Mm-hmm. But he said that he was in the chapel and you have to know Ellis. Uh, and he's, a much, he's much better to tell this story, but he said that he was in the chapel that was built there and you know, it's all one room uh, overlooking the mountains, but one side, this was in the seventies on one side, uh, there was the non-smoking section and on the other side was the smoking section. And of course the whole chapel is filled with smoke, but, uh, <laughs> um, but he said that he was sitting over there and Schaefer would sit at, sit at his desk and, and ask if anyone had questions. And so it was just a Q and a time. And he would do this for about two hours every Saturday night. And so, uh, Ellis Potter, raised his hand and uh, Francis Schaefer recognized him or saw that he did so and, and said, yes, Ellis, do you have a question? And Ellis, as a, a one who was very committed to Buddhism, was like, why God? And everyone started laughing, uh, you know, laughing at uh, him asking this kind of crazy question and uh, people kind of tittering and stuff. And Schaefer, Francis Schaefer got very angry and he slammed his hand down on the desk and said, this man has an honest question. And everyone was silent. And then he turned to Ellis and said, I don't know. And he said, and Ellis was so moved by that, that he said that it broke him and that he walked out of that chapel, not knowing what to do with that, that he was taken fully with respect but also that this guy who has answers said he didn't know. And, and it's a long story, but basically shape, I mean, Potter was, Ellis said that it's like um, uh, him, him not knowing what he is not, then he must be something that is not anyway, that confused his Buddhism. Uh, <laughs> and it began to unspiral his thought process, but he ended up becoming a Christian and, and has long served Labrie since then uh, over the decades. But, uh, but does he have an answer? Why God? No, he never did. And I don't know how you could even respond to that question, <laughs> but, um, you know, even God says I am who I am. I mean, that's, <laughs> but taking people seriously and taking their ideas seriously or their questions seriously is, is a part of what it means to address. And I think that when Christians are just trying to give answers to questions, then they end up missing the whole point. Um, so, but yeah, it is important to take people and their ideas seriously. Well, okay, it's uh, it's just about time, so uh, we should wrap it up because you're still very excited and you're ready for next week. Um, 
I often like to make it last until you are fading. But, um, but next week, we'll be dealing with uh, Loftus and this other person on why the Bible is not God's word. Uh, so okay. look, to, look forward to it then.